Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. show was sponsored by Dr. Dan Rubin, who is the medical director and co-founder of Naturopathic Specialists located in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Rubin is a naturopathic oncologist and has experience in using low-dose naltrexone in his oncology practice over the last 18 years. Naturopathic Specialists can be found online at www.listenandcare.com. Today my guest is Dr. Dan Rubin, who is the founder and medical director of naturopathic specialists in Scottsdale, Arizona. He is an expert at integration of traditional and naturopathic medicines for people with cancer and services both the adult and pediatric population. Thank you for joining us today, Dan. Hey, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, for those people who have done their homework on LDN will know you wrote an LDN and cancer paper with Dr. Bert Berkson. How many years ago was that now? Oh boy, that's got to be at least seven years ago. We did that first one when we talked about the resolution of metastatic pancreatic cancer and then we did the follow-up of three different cases and I can actually get you the date on that. First one, or let's see, looks like first one was, I can't get the date. I have it on, yeah, it was 2006, and then we followed that up in 2009. Mm-hmm. So 11 years ago, that first case came out. Wow. And a lot has happened in that time. What has happened in your practice in those last you know, years? You know, I'd have to say that in my practice, being more used to prescribing LDN to people and having it be a more comfortable prescription because there's, there's just so much more for patients to be uh, information for them to consume and allow them to understand how LDN works. Some people are now coming to me as new patients actually looking to see if we use LDN in our practice. Um, understanding some of the side effect profiles that we see and how to gauge those. I'd say we've also um, found that because we're u- we continue to use LDN more and more, um, we're also finding that people have unique sensitivities and some people can't tolerate the, the four and a half milligram dose. And some people can only tolerate half of a milligram or, say, a milligram and a half. And I'm saying that's relatively new, and it may be simply due to the number of prescriptions we're using, uh, or it may be due to, you know, some other type of sensitivity that I I don't know. And then one of the other changes we've seen is using it and bringing it into the pediatric population, which we've sort of just started doing. Mm-hmm. And how do you 
what kind of regime do you have for paediatrics? I mean, what is the youngest child that you have treated with LDN? You know, I believe it's five years old. Uh, I can't recall exactly right now. We don't have too many pediatrics on it, um, and we haven't used it in the co-management world where the child is on chemotherapy and also taking LDN, and I, that's really due to comfort level on the co-management side. But with some of the new work that we see coming out, like with cisplatin, you know, uh, and ovarian carcinoma cells, et cetera, I think that's, that's on the horizon. The problem, or not the problem, the issue is that, uh, you know, first it takes an understanding of how to treat a pediatric patient because it's really it's not the same as treating an adult. It's a, it's a, different, it's a different field of oncology. Um, but in the prevention of recurrent setting where the immune system is so important, um, we have to make sure that we are stimulating the immune system and or using what we can, especially in high-risk kids. Um, and so, and you know, we have a population of children. We see quite a few children with neuroblastoma. That's been a focus of ours, partially because of some of the work that I'm doing internationally with um, neuroblastoma. We, we tend to see quite a few of those children. But yeah, I think there's value in it, and I'm excited about the future. Mm-hmm. And a blastoma, as far as I know, is, is a brain tumor. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, can be, but it's typically found more in the thorax, um, can be affected by the adrenal gland, okay. can typically grow around the spinal cord. So really just based on sort of the embryonic development, but not just, um, not just the central lesion. Okay. So a patient comes to see you. We're talking an adult patient here. Sure. And they've been diagnosed with cancer. What... How do you go about treating that patient? Because obviously, I should think some of the patients that come to see you have already consulted with other doctors beforehand. Am I right? Uh, well, should we pick a type of a profile of the patient? Then maybe we, because it's sort of a broad question. Obviously, we know mm-hmm. with pancreatic cancer, different than people with breast cancer, different than somebody with renal cell carcinoma. But um, let's maybe pick a profile and we can sort of use that all the all the way through our interview yeah okay you choose well um you know i would we see so many people with breast cancer nowadays um we've become true experts at the integration of therapies at all levels uh, and some people who you know are doing different various conventional therapies, et cetera. I, there's so much data on that. We have so many patients on LDN with breast cancer. I think it would be fair, but that might also be something that people are used to seeing. And, you know, we could also maybe pick the more rare person, somebody with renal cell carcinoma. So um, I could also say, I mean, do you want to pick breast cancer? Does that work for you? Yeah, breast cancer is fine. Okay. Okay, so tell me again the, the question, and okay. it was sort of broad. Yeah, so a patient comes to you with breast cancer, and he's asking your opinion on treatment. What? How would you go about treating that patient with breast cancer? 
Well, I guess it's really up to me. I'm, we're going to have to say that this is a woman, let's say, with stage 3 disease, so who is going to go through neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then they're probably looking at uh, surgery after that, and depending on the surgery, then maybe radiation therapy. So what I mean by that is that on initial staging, the woman has lesion in the, uh, at least one large lesion in at least one breast and has some nodes that may be evident on PET scan putting her in a you know a higher stage category and the physician has chosen to um, offer her chemotherapy the woman has accepted and this chemotherapy is going to be given prior to surgery thus being neoadjuvant and um, after so she's this woman is going to go through that chemotherapy. We're going to support her through that. And then after her chemotherapy, she's probably looking at surgery. And let's just say that this woman goes through a lumpectomy and a lymph node dissection and is found to have complete pathologic response, which means that upon looking at the pathology, there's no evidence of cancer found in the lesion area in her breast and her lymph nodes, her sentinel lymph nodes. Um, let's say that they took three sentinel lymph nodes and they took seven other nodes for a total of 10. None of them had cancer. So let's just say also that this woman had um, a PET scan after chemotherapy prior to surgery and was found to have no hypermetabolic lesions. And so she really had no evidence of disease radiologically. She doesn't have any evidence of disease clinically on exam. She doesn't have any evidence of disease surgically or histologically on pathology. And also, let's say that we ran a circulating tumor cell level, and she also can't, we can't find any evidence of disease laboratory-wise. Tumor markers are negative. Her circulating tumor cells are negative. So there's four evaluation parameters where she has no evidence of disease. So this person has chosen not to do radiation therapy after her, after her surgery. Mm -hmm. And so she might also, because this woman is estrogen receptor positive at 98% and her progesterone receptor is 95% positive and she is HER2 negative, she is also offered five years of an aromatase inhibitor because she's postmenopausal. There's our case. In that case, is she's a woman that I'm familiar with because we co-managed her during chemotherapy. She did well. She's strong. She generally kept her blood counts up. And now she's presenting in my clinic saying, I don't want to do radiation therapy. And she um, is open to the estrogen replacement therapy. Um, this right now, especially from her foregoing the radiation therapy and questioning how she's going to tolerate the aromatase inhibition therapy would be a classic case where we would want to employ LDN. And I'd probably want to give her LDN if she could tolerate for, at, a, uh, at her weight, the four and a half milligram dose is appropriate for her. And I'd like to give that to her initially every night at bedtime. And I'd like to go for, are you still there? Yes. Okay, good. Sorry. And I'd like to go for a total of two years with her. 
at least. And that's my proposal to her. And then um, within several months, we would begin some intermittent therapy where we uh, may decide to uh, withhold the LDN depending on what schedule we figure out. She would be a classic LDN case, especially because um, I should have mentioned, too, that because we met her at time of diagnosis and because we met her pre-surgically, we, have, we also found that she had a uh, low natural killer cell function test, which is a parameter that I use for looking at candidacy for people on LDN. The problem is, is that with natural killer cell function, it's difficult to obtain because really you want to obtain in the most meaningful uh, natural killer cell function testing is while the tumor is still in the patient and before there's been any treatment given. That's your best assessment. And I do that a lot on people with breast cancer. Of course, going back to some of the data from the mid-70s by James McCoy, looking at um, overall survival in people, pre uh, women pre-surgically with breast cancer uh, with natural killer cell function. So aside from some of the other stuff that I would be doing, uh, she would, that person would be an optimal LDN candidate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interestingly, you were saying about 4.5. You don't actually start them on 4.5, do you? Do you work it up uh, or, or start directly on 4.5? So it's sort of like the way we treated melatonin for years. And um, I should say I started using LDN about 19 years ago. So got pretty used to it back in the day. Uh, hang on one second. Back in the day, it was a 3.0 milligram dose. And yes, we would start them either on one milligram. Uh, sensitive people, we'd start maybe at a half milligram. And we would also, or some we would just start on 3.0 milligram. Um, I have to say that the, the grand bulk of people nowadays, I start them either right at three milligram if I think that's their appropriate dose, or I start them right at four and a half milligram. And that's because of putting thousands of people on low dose naltrexone. I found that many people don't need to be worked up. Now, if somebody has a sensitivity or if somebody has some inflammatory type pain or if somebody is close enough to having stopped their opioid analgesic, or depending on their unique situation, I may start them at a quarter milligram and work, but their goal dose may only be 1.5 milligram, and we could work them up over a period of weeks or months to a satisfactory dose. And quite honestly, I, you know, based on either side effects with sleeping or leg, um, leg jumpiness or some idiosyncratic effects, I have kept people between uh, 1.5 milligrams and 4.5 milligrams. But I should say that it is not standard in my practice to work people up. Mm -hmm. I do that on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. Okay. And have any of your patients reported any negative side effects other than, you know, as you mentioned, sleep disturbance? Yes. Uh, you know, most notably, and I think it's what most physicians are used to, is the vivid dreaming, which some patients enjoy and some cannot tolerate. And I think it's really dependent on life circumstances as well as lifetime sleeping habits. And some dreams when they're accentuated in their vividness by LDN 
and or melatonin, I have to say, and or the combo can become frightening to people and it can interrupt sleep or cause nocturnal stress and can cause them to wake up feeling fatigued because they were stressed during their sleeping time. Um, pretty, we don't see that that often. I do talk to people about it. Um, I also have seen a couple people that um, get a very minor case, if you will, of a restless leg. I don't know that it's, it's not a true restless leg syndrome, but it has something to do with the position, I believe, the position that they sleep in and the quality of their bed. Um, and it has something to do with the blockade of the opioid receptor and or inflammation that they have. And there's some connection there. I haven't figured it all out, um, but there's something there. Um, there's some people who do have a wakefulness, and uh, from time to time, I would say, there's people who say, I just don't feel right, and will usually lower their dose since it's a, a vague symptomatology that they have, and with a lower dose, we can at least get them on some LDN, maybe not what we would consider the gold dose for each patient. Mm -hmm. And just about uh, restless legs syndrome there, Dr. Leonard Weinstock is actually using LDN for restless leg syndrome, and he's also doing yeah. a study which has been quite remarkable um, for patients because so many different, I didn't realize that restless legs can be a condition or a symptom for many different conditions. So that was quite an eye opener for me. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. So the patients that are taking. LDN in your clinic, um, if we stick with the, the patient with the breast cancer, do you do a regime of, you know, supplements and diet alongside of LDN and other therapies? Absolutely. We, I've been a board-certified naturopathic oncologist since 2006, and I've been practicing naturopathic oncology now going on my 21st year. And I am I'm pretty hardcore when it comes to naturopathic medicine. We have a full-scope clinic here in Scottsdale, Arizona. We have three board-certified naturopathic oncologists on staff. We have a resident physician and fully staffed nursing staff, et cetera. So we'll do everything from uh, homeopathics, constitutional homeopathy. Uh, we have a detox center here, including colonic hydrotherapy. We have ozone therapy. We have a, uh, an IV, uh, an IV room. Uh, we have um, full scope nutrition, depending on whatever type of diet this person needs to be on, anti-inflammatory to the ketogenic vegan diet. Um, we do exercise regimes. We don't have a gym in our clinic, but we're very, I mean, we absolutely believe, especially for the patient that we're using that stage 3C who is declining the radiation therapy and maybe declining the aromatase inhibitor, we're going to focus on diet and nutrition, especially because of the data that's so important coming out demonstrating just the impact that can be had on, a, on that type of patient uh, by lowering body fat percentage. So we have a really nice state-of-the-art body composition analyzer here. We really take it to heart to look inside their composition. And we live in Arizona here, so the patients that we see 
Um, it's sort of like, you know, we just flip it. In the summer, they can't exercise outside, but the patients in Chicago can't exercise outside really in the winter. For the most part. <laughs> but either way, we say we need to get you sweating five times per week, and we need you to sustain that sweat for a good 20 to 30 minutes as tolerable, and we're going to get them to optimize their body comp. We're going to help them optimize their diet. We're big believers in getting at least 80% of their diet together. Mm-hmm. And then we use a, we have a full-scope medicinary here as well, and we, use, uh, we have a full-scope botanical dispensary as well. So I'd say we really do hit you know, all the big points and a lot of the smaller points when it comes to treatment. And then one of the most important things about our facility is the integration of practitioners. There's eight physicians here. We have environmental-focused physicians. We have women's health-focused physicians, pain management, men's health, oncology. Um, and then, of course, we have the pediatric department, which um, I, I'm the one who sees the, the, pediat- the patients with pediatric oncology issues. Mm-hmm. So thank you for asking that, too, because it's important that if you don't put it all together, then you, it's hard to tell sometimes where you're lacking. And we spend a lot of time on laboratory assessment, really believe in looking deep at the microbiome, looking as much as we can at the functional genome. And then we have our own way of assessing the terrain. And I have been a, I have been a stroma slash terrain focused physician for 18 plus years. Big believer in the um, theory of cancers or tumors as unhealed wounds and how they wreak havoc in the physiology and the body and have focused on the stroma and not as much on the tumor for many years. I have a strong, strong belief in the integration in that conventional oncology is really good at killing cancer cells, but they're not good at supporting the patient from a from a naturopathic what the what the human body needs, and then vice versa. Uh, naturopathic physicians are the world leaders in helping the patient understanding the stroma and treating the person with the cancer, and reducing the hospitality of the terrain to cancer cells, even the ones that you can't see. That's a big point we should talk about because LDN comes into play there. Mm -hmm. But we're really not good overall at killing the cancer cells per se. That's why I'm a believer in integration. And when you put them together, it just works better. That's my main practice um, MO. Mm -hmm. Getting back to diet, uh, no you treat the person as an individual. So we can't really generalize everybody because everybody is individual and you tailor it to that person's requirements. But if there were any foods that are better for people to eat who have cancer and foods that you shouldn't eat if you had cancer, are there any food groups that are better than others? Well, I'm going to take the liberty to believe that there's been others before me on your show who have probably been talked about this um, a little bit more, but it's a really difficult generalization to make nowadays because I would say of the advent of the of the ketogenic diet and the you know the metabolic um, diets that we're now seeing, and that I would say without question, if somebody's going to pick 
one diet, not a specific diet, just one diet, they should eat how a human being was designed to eat, reminding ourselves, all of us, anybody listening right now, that modern medicine has only been around for a smidgen, a speck of time since humans have been on this earth, however anybody believes we got here. And that in no way are we positioned to truly understand what our cells need and our genes need and how they should interact with the environment when we have toxic chemicals standing in the way anywhere you turn. And so it's very difficult to say food you should eat versus food you shouldn't eat. The food you shouldn't eat some of them, I don't know that I would actually classify them as a food. It's an edible substance, but it might not be a food, depending on what one's definition of a food is. You know, is a food something that is grown by nature, not packaged, or is a food an, a substance that's chewable, palatable, digestible by the body, and can somehow you know, contains a calorie, but it's not necessarily a, a, a true building block and doesn't have nutrients and minerals. So I would say somebody needs to think about what a food is, how it got onto that shelf in the supermarket, and how quickly um, it was to be made and how much it resembles a food that our genes understand. Our genes understand foods that have sunlight in them, that use energy from the earth to be produced. And I would say if you focus on those, even if it's an animal product, because we humans have eaten animals for as long as I've known about history, but there are certain foods, and I know I can't name them on your show, that I'm saying I don't know that I would consider them food. So to me... This isn't a hard one. When you look down at your plate, there should be plants on there. And there can be some starches. That's okay because plants make starches too. And there can be lean proteins. There can be fish. There can be lean chicken or lean poultry. But you also got to realize that what's in the meat and what's contained in those products are what those either um, plants or those animals were grown with. And if they were grown with chemicals, then the quality of the food isn't going to be as good as if they were grown the way that they are supposed to be grown. So that's really the context and really the diet without getting specific mm -hmm. and talking about one of the many diets. We focus on anti-inflammatory and we focus on whole foods type diets. And I still believe, after this many years of practice, that the whole food diet wins out overall. And it's very difficult these days. Um, what's going to happen in 50 years' time, especially in England, where we keep building on land that was farmland? You know, how are we going to feed ourselves? It's quite a worry but i don't think i'll have to uh, worry about that i won't be here then but it, it's quite scary i can see we will end up with something man-made to replace food because we can't can't grow enough food i find that quite scary but um for patients and even doctors who would like to contact you to discuss further how do they get hold of you um, well, 
We have a phone number and we have a website. Our URL is very simple. It's listenandcare.com. Listenandcare.com. It's all spelled out. L-I-S-T-E-N-A-N-D-C-A-R-E.com. You can reach us there and you can see the profile of all of our physicians. We're very open about, um, we're not a protocol-based clinic, we're a physician-based clinic. Um, many uh, sort of non-conventional clinics won't advertise who their physicians are. They'll just tell you about the protocol. We're the opposite. We're not going to tell you what we do per se, until you get here, because we don't know what we're going to do until you're in front of us, because we serve the unique needs of people. But we will tell you about our physicians and all our qualifications, and we're very transparent with that. We also have a phone number. It is 480-990-1111. Very convenient phone number. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for being my guest today, and it's been amazing after all these years of knowing about you, to actually speak to you. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Likewise, thank you. Thank you. This show was sponsored by Dr. Dan Rubin, who is the medical director and co-founder of Naturopathic Specialists located in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Rubin is a naturopathic oncologist and has experience in using low-dose naltrexone in his oncology practice over the last 18 years. Naturopathic specialists can be found online at www.listenandcare.com. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, Linda. L-I-N-D-A at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.